All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga, all glories to Sri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Vishnu Prasthaya Bhutale, Sri Matipa, Swami Nityamani, Namaste, Saraswati Devi, Gauravani Pacharani, Nivasesa Sunivani Paskadyade Satarani, Vandayam Sri Guru Sri Uta, Parakamalam Sri Guru and Vaishnavamstra, Sri Rupam Sagrita, Tamsahatmara, Sadvaitam, Sadvadutam, Parijana Sahita, Krishna Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's April 5th, 2019. We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 15, Description of the Kingdom of God, Text 39. Krishna Pasada Sumukas Puyani Krishna Prasada Simukam Sprahan. No, that's not right. Krishna Prasada Simukam Sprahani Yadama. Sneha Valoka Kalaya Ridisam Sprisantam. Shame Pritavarasi so bitayashiraswas. Chudamanim subagayantami vatmajis disnam. Kritsna prasada. Blessing everyone. Sumukam, auspicious face, Sprihaniya, desirable, Dhamma, shelter, Sneha, affection, Avaloka, looking upon, Kalaya, by expansion, Riddhi, within the heart, Samsprishantam, touching, Shame, Unto the Lord with blackish color. Pritau, broad, urasi, chest, shobitaya, being decorated. Shriya, goddess of fortune. Swa, heavenly planets. Chudamanim, summit. Subhagayantam. Spreading good fortune. Iha, like Atma, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Dishnyam, abode. Srila Prabhupada's translation. The Lord is the reservoir of all pleasure. His auspicious presence is meant for everyone's benediction, and his affectionate smiling and glancing touch the core of the heart. The Lord's beautiful bodily color is blackish, and his broad chest is the resting place of the goddess of fortune, who glorifies the entire spiritual world, the summit of all heavenly planets. 
Thus it appeared that the Lord was personally spreading the beauty and good fortune of the spiritual world. Shilla Prabhupada's purport. When the Lord came, he was pleased with everyone. So who is the everyone here? Who's here? The four Kumaras, huh? Jai and Vijay. And I'm sure there are many other associates also, yes? Therefore it is stated here, Krishna Prasada Sumukam. The Lord knew that even the offensive doormen were his pure devotees, although by chance they committed an offense at the feet of other devotees. To commit an offense against a devotee is very dangerous in devotional service. Lord Chaitanya therefore said that an offense to a devotee is just like a mad elephant run loose. When a mad elephant enters a garden, it tramples all the plants. Similarly, an offense under the lotus feet of a pure devotee murders one's position in devotional service. Whoa. That's an interesting metaphor. Your position in devotional service is like a person. And this mad elephant comes and murders him. On the part of the Lord, there was no offended mood, because he does not accept any offense created by his sincere devotee. But a devotee should be very cautious of committing offenses at the feet of another devotee. The Lord, being equal to all and being especially inclined to his devotee, looked as mercifully at the offenders as at the offended. This attitude of the Lord was due to his unlimited quality of transcendental qualities. That's a very interesting sentence. His cheerful attitude towards the devotees was so pleasing and heart-touching that his very smile was attractive for them. That attraction was glorious not only for all the higher planets of this material world, but beyond for the spiritual world also. Generally, a human being has no idea of what the constitutional position is in the higher material planets, which are far better constituted in regard to all paraphernalia. Yet the Vaikuntha planet is so pleasing and so celestial that it is compared to the middle jewel or locket in a necklace of jewels. In this verse, the words Sprihaniyadham indicate that the Lord is the reservoir of all pleasure because he has all the transcendental qualities. Although only some of these are aspired for by persons who hanker after the pleasure of merging in the personal Brahman, there are other aspects who want to associate with the Lord personally as his servants. The Lord is so kind that he gives shelter to everyone, both impersonalists and devotees. He gives shelter to the impersonalist in his impersonal Brahman effulgence, whereas he gives shelter to the devotees in his personal abodes, known as the Vaikuntalokas. He is especially inclined to his devotee. He touches the core of the heart of the devotee simply by smiling and glancing over him. The Lord is always served in Vaikuntaloka by many hundreds of thousands of goddesses of fortune, as stated by the Brahma Samhita, Lakshmi Sahasrasata Samrama In this material world, one is glorified if he is favored, even a, if he is favored even a pinch by the goddess of fortune. So we can simply imagine how glorified is the kingdom of God in the spiritual world, where many hundreds of thousands of goddesses of fortune 
engage in the direct service of the Lord. Another feature of this verse is that it openly declares where the Vaikuntha locusts are situated. They are situated as the summit of all the heavenly planets, which are above the sun globe, at the upper limit of the universe, and are known as Satyaloka or Brahmaloka. The spiritual world is situated beyond the universe. Therefore, it is stated here that the spiritual world, Vaikuntha Loka, is the summit of all planetary systems. Krishna Prasada Sumukam Sprihaniya Dhamma Sneha Valoka Kalaya Vidisam Sprishanitam Shame Prita Vurvasi So Shobitaya Shriya Swas Chudam Manim Subhagayan Tamivatma Drishnam The Lord is the reservoir of all pleasure. His auspicious presence is meant for everyone's benediction, and his affectionate smiling and glancing touch the core of the heart. The Lord's beautiful bodily color is blackish, and his broad chest is the resting place of the goddess of fortune. He glorifies the entire spiritual world, the summit of all heavenly planets. Thus it appeared that the Lord was personally spreading the beauty and good fortune of the spiritual world. So the Lord is pleased with everyone. He was even pleased with the offenders. That's very good news, at least for me. That the Lord is even pleased with the offenders. He even benedicts the offenders. He even benedicts the impersonalists. And here it says here that he does not accept any offense created by his sincere devotee. He doesn't accept an offense. He's not offended. He's pleased even with the offenders. He's pleased even with the impersonalists. Yet, an offense against a devotee will murder our position in devotional These are two interesting uh, juxtapositions and interesting paradox. So the Lord is very kind. We don't always think in this material world that the Lord is very kind. materialistic people, more or less, uh, see the Lord either uh, in opposition to themselves, that they are a competitor with the Lord, they are in rebellion against the Lord, or they see the Lord as some sort of order supplier that they regretfully and resentfully have to please in order to get what they want. Right? Generally, if in order to get what we want, we have to please a superior, we feel some resentment against that superior, that I need them to to give me what I want, that I can't just take it for myself. Isn't that funny? Right? If I have to beg from somebody to get something, it's not a very pleasing thing. So the general attitude in this world is one of antagonism to the Lord. Even those who are religious, if their mood is simply to go to the Lord to ask for material things, more or less it's an antagonistic attitude. And, you know, when we don't get exactly what we want, how we want, when we want, where we want, we often become angry with the Lord. Even religious people will become angry with the Lord. Isn't that a fact? So I know one devotee whose daughter died when she was, I don't know, 23, 24, of a long illness. And I visited her. I first met her, actually, a couple years after her daughter had died. And her main mood towards Krishna was one of anger. 
How, how could he have let my daughter die? So even though she was a, she's a devotee, when I was there, it was Purushottamas, and she was uh, she was reading through the whole Bhagavatam in one month for Purushottamas. Still, her mood when she was reading the Bhagavatam was she was angry. So we don't generally think of the Lord as being kind. You know, even Lord Kapiladev later in this canto will talk about how all the material elements are fearing the Lord. The wind is fearing the Lord. And in so many religions of the world, they talk about fear God. So we see God as this powerful, fearful being who we have to appease regretfully. We have to appease to get what we want. And who bandies about our life in ways that we don't always like. Sometimes we like it, and sometimes we don't. But that's not the reality. That's an illusion. The reality is that the Lord is very kind. And He's actually only kind. He's kind even when He appears to be angry. He's kind even when He appears to punish someone. Uh, He's always kind. He's always loving. We have some little idea in this world with parents, but I don't think any parent is always loving. I'd be very interested to meet such a parent. But I think we have some idea in this world. We have some idea in this world with parents. Good parents, at least. I mean, nowadays in 2019, you never know when you talk about parents, what people's experiences have been. But generally, most of the time, in most circumstances, the parents are loving even when they are correcting the child. Their mood is for the child's benefit. Generally, not always. Materialistic parents are also selfish, etc. But generally, the mood is for the child's benefit. And generally, the parents don't take offense even at the child's offensive behavior, especially with very young children. Maybe different with adult children, with very young children. Just like Lord Brahma says how that when the baby in the womb is kicking the mother, the mother doesn't feel offended. In fact, the mother is feeling, oh, my little baby is moving inside me. She feels happy, even though the baby is kicking her. And even though sometimes, honestly, it's not always so pleasant when the baby's kicking your ribs. But you don't feel offended. You know, you're changing your baby's nappy and they literally poop all over your face. Should I tell you that story? (laughs) My son was very small, like two months old. And we had been asked by OTBC to move from Chicago to New York because the New York Temple had just acquired a farm, Gita Nagari, which at that time they called New Varshana. But we couldn't move to the farm right away, so we had to stay in the New York Temple for a while. And the temple president had promised us a flat and all kinds of things, but when we actually got there, none of the promises held, and we, we didn't have anything at all. So we, we had no place to stay at, at all, so they said, well, we don't allow children to stay in the ashram, but maybe you can stay there for a few days till you find a place. So I was staying in a closet 
in the room with the Brahmacharinis, and the closet had no door. You couldn't stand up in it, and it had no door. It was, it was like a storage area kind of thing, and the, the women would all go on book distribution. And I was told, you know, your baby can't disturb anybody because if he disturbs any of the ladies' sleep, then they won't be able to get it from Uncle Artie and go on book distribution, so you have to keep him quiet all the time, which is a little difficult with a two-month-old baby. Anyway, so, so he, he woke up in the middle of the night to eat, which babies do when they're two months old. And so after I fed him, I, I, I felt his, his diaper, his nappy, and I felt it was wet. I thought, okay, i got to change him, so I was changing him in the dark because if I couldn't turn on any light, because if I turned on the light, then I would wake up all the ladies in the room. So there's a certain point where you have to lift the baby's legs to take out the dirty diaper and put in a clean diaper. And when I did that, a two-month-old baby's poop is all liquid. So when I lifted up his feet, he went... And I was just completely covered in, in poop. And my bed was covered in poop. And I couldn't turn on the light and I couldn't let my baby cry. So I wasn't quite sure, it was one o'clock in the morning, and I wasn't quite sure how to, how to deal with this situation. So being totally covered in poop, I took my baby to the bathroom and just stuck him there in a little plastic seat and closed the door and figured if he cried in there, that would be okay. And you know, I kind of washed myself up a little bit in the bathroom while he's in this little plastic seat all covered with poop. And then I'm thinking, how do I take care of my bed, you know? So then I left him there with the door closed and went back to my bed and tried to kind of adjust the blankets a little bit. Went back to the bathroom and cleaned him up and took him back to the bed and tried to get another few hours of sleep in a poopy covered bed. But I was not offended with my child. I didn't think, oh, what a terrible child. Pooping all over me in the middle of the night. I hope my son doesn't hear the recording of this class. <laughs> So the point is, I didn't feel offended by him. You know, I wasn't offended. I didn't. You know, I wasn't angry with him. I, I, I saw him as faultless. I still loved him. I was still trying to serve him. I was still his well-wisher. I was still trying to take care of him. You know, and and that's frankly Krishna's mood. Krishna is kind to the offenders, and he's kind to the offended. He's kind kind to the impersonalists, and he's kind to the pure devotees. He's kind to everyone. So should we start with, uh, let's start with the negative and we can end on a positive note, that's good. So let's start with the impersonalists. We can start with them because they're hopefully the most removed from who we are. So we'll, we'll be least affected by that. So Krishna's very kind to the impersonalists. Now really the impersonalists are the worst kind of offenders frankly, because the impersonalists want to be God and they are denying the personality of God. So if, if we think about what could be the greatest offense that somebody could commit to us, it would be to deny us as, a, as an individual being and, and to want to just take over us. If you think about, you know, the, the dictators of the world, really demoniac people of the world, they generally like with their subordinates to own them completely, to just use the subordinates as extensions of their own senses to get whatever they want without caring for the individuality of their subordinates. Isn't that correct? 
And if, if we think about what abuse means, what, is, what, do, what do we mean when we say abuse? Of course, that word, I think, is often bandied about now for almost anything. But if, if we think actually what criminal abuse is, it's you're seeing someone else as a non-person. You're seeing them as an object. You know, they're like a rubbish bin where you, you dump your own emotions on that person. You dump your own anger, your own frustrations, your own lust, whatever, on that person. And many times abusers actively want to destroy the personhood of the other living entity. You know, psychological abuse, which is perhaps the most difficult to understand for people who haven't been psychologically abused, is where someone is going, you know, you're just the most disgusting, despicable insect in the world. You know, it's different from ordinary insults and ordinary anger in that it's really trying to destroy that person as a living being. So the impersonalists, they have this idea of destroying God as an individual being and just to become one with him. And it's really a kind of extreme abuse of the Lord. Which is why even the demons that the Lord kills also enter into the Ramajati. It's, it's a suitable destination for the demons. Our god brother Sadaputta, when he researched about people's contact with aliens, I don't know if any of you ever read that book, Alien Identities. What I thought was the most interesting part of that book where he was comparing modern day encounters with alien beings to the descriptions in the Bhagavatam and other Vedic literatures was that in the modern day, when people would encounter alien beings, these alien beings were preaching a religion of impersonalism. And he found that fascinating. Demons have a religion. Any human-like entity has religion. Even atheists have a kind of religion. They're worshipping matter as God and scientists as priests. You understand? There's some kind of explanation of the meaning and the purpose and the origin of life. So the demons, have, they do have a religion, but their religion is impersonalism. Everybody can become God. God has no separate identity. So Sadhguru found this absolutely fascinating, that these demoniac living entities from some other planet or dimension were coming to this earth, interacting with human beings, and preaching impersonalism. So when someone is a spiritualist, but an impersonalist, they get the same destination as the demons. Yet, Krishna is kind to them, and he allows them to achieve their objective. All right, you want to become one with me? You want to lose your own identity? Krishna says the demons envy themselves. What is our self? I'm an individual living being. I'm a servant of God. They envy the fact that they're a servant of God. They envy their own nature. They hate their own nature. So even someone who hates themselves and hates God and wants spirituality by becoming one with God, the Lord is kind to them. And he says, fine, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. He doesn't hate them in return. Even when Krishna kills the demons and has them go to the Brahma Jyoti, he doesn't hate them. He has only love for them. He has compassion and he has... Passion is also explained as a kind of sadness. 
that, oh, you, you want something that's, that's going to destroy our relationship. It's interesting, many times the impersonalists are considered higher than the karmis. But there's at least one place where Prabhupada says that those who aspire for the heavenly planets are higher because they actually desire some personal existence. All right, then let's look at the offenders. So I think we have to admit, many of us, at least for myself, that I am an offender. You know, in most of our temples every morning we read through the ten offenses, and if we, if we pay attention to them, we'll think, oh, gosh, huh, I've done that. You know, maybe I'm doing that. And also, if we're honest, we probably have offended some devotees. We probably have sometimes offended devotees even knowingly and even intentionally. Someone I know quite well uh, was very angry at another devotee. And the way that she rationalized her behavior against this devotee with whom she was angry was by saying, well, this person's not really a devotee. We call that give the dog a bad name and then hang him. This person is now preaching very actively. Well, you know, devotees, a devotee is very rare. saying, well, devotee means somebody who has absolutely no selfish material desire at all. I said, well, this other person is at least an aspiring devotee, yes? No, no, even aspiring devotees are very, very rare. Is this person a sadhaka? Oh, no, even sadhakas, they're very rare. I mean, I'm not a sadhaka. Well, what are you then? You're an initiated devotee, you're following the principles, chanting your rounds, offering your food. What are you? So we, we see in our Krishna consciousness movement, I mean, we have to be honest, that there's a lot of offenses against devotees that go on in our movement, yes? In fact, there's a statement in the Ektor Devotion where Prabhupada says that if you engage in Krishna consciousness in your past life, but you've committed offenses, particularly an offense against a devotee, you may take birth in a low family. And, and whenever I read that, I think, I wonder if that's the situation for a lot of us. I mean, many of us had from a very young age some interest in spirituality and interest in, in God, and as soon as we found out about Krishna, we're like, wow, that's what I want. But we had these, these low births. And I see it as one of the biggest problems in our movement is, is offenses against And I've offended devotees. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else. You know, and it's, it's, it's really, really a problem. I was just privy to a a discussion among many of the leaders of our movement and some other devotees on a particular topic, which I shall not name. And the discussion started out very civil. It started out with quoting from Shastra and quoting from Acharyas and talking about philosophical points and so forth. But at a certain point, one side was definitely presenting better arguments than the other side. We'll say side A was presenting better arguments than side B. And side A asked the question, 
You're interpreting this verse in a certain way, but Shiva Prabhupada interpreted it in another way. Why are you ignoring Shiva Prabhupada's interpretation and going with another interpretation? Now, that kind of statement could very much be taken as an attack. The deepest way you can attack anybody is to accuse them of disloyalty to Shiva Prabhupada. That's the ultimate insult. Or it could have been taken just simply as, as a question. Prabhupada's giving his explanation of this statement, and you're giving something opposite to Prabhupada. Why are you doing that? But the group B then went on an all-out attack. They attacked the people who were presenting side A, they attacked, they attacked the whole leadership, they attacked the whole GBC, they attacked, they attacked everybody. And very soon after that, most people just said, I don't want anything more to do with this discussion. But it was just very interesting. I mean, it took probably 10 days, 10, 14 days, for it to go from a, a very philosophical, very scholarly, very civil discussion. In fact, many of the people involved were saying, we're so happy that this controversial thing can be discussed in a civil manner. I was in a part of the world where these people were physically located and I went up to some of these people, even the ones with whom I disagreed, and I said, I'm so happy that you're discussing this civilly, but very quickly integrated into a text. And in you know, really insulting language. So it's, it's a problem. And then instead of being able to resolve the issue, all that happened is people walked away from it with bad feelings about each other. It's just so easy, you know, we offend other devotees either by saying, well, you know, who's really a devotee? The thing I want to criticize you for means you're not a devotee. Yeah. Or just, if we're wrong, instead of admitting that we're wrong, we attack the other party, or for whatever, so many reasons that we justify to ourselves why we offend devotees. But here it says, these two opposite things, that Krishna doesn't accept any offense created by his sincere devotee. Krishna doesn't accept any offense. So Krishna actually does not feel offended. Many years ago I was here for Govardhan Puja, I was giving class downstairs on the Govardhan Puja pastime, and I talked about how Indra thought that he was offended. Yeah? He thought the Rajabhasis had offended him. And his response was to try to kill them all. Pretty severe response. And flood their community. And later on he realized that he was the offender. And then in that class I mentioned that I'd been part of a, a group of devotees working on some things. And I thought that they had offended me and I left the group in anger. And ten years later they asked me to come back and I was saying to a friend, I don't know if I want to come back, they really offended me. She asked me what happened and I told her and she said, I think you offended them. And I immediately got angry and as soon as I got angry I thought, oh yes, she's right, I must have offended them, otherwise I wouldn't feel angry. So then I apologized for that was here actually. I called those devotees and I apologized to them. So I was telling that story downstairs 
and one, uh, one young man who was just newly coming to Krishna consciousness, he said, why would Krishna let some, and I, oh, I said it was 10 years between the time that I left that group in anger, feeling they had offended me, and the time I realized that I was the offender, and I apologized. And this young man said, why would Krishna let somebody stay in the Hare Krishna movement for 10 years if they were an offender to devotees? And everybody laughed. And I said, you're talking about me, right? No, no, no. I said, no, of course you were talking about me. I said, if Krishna kicked out everybody as soon as they were offensive, you know, we'd really have a problem. I said, he thankfully gives us time to rectify. I didn't even know I was offensive. It took me 10 years before I even understood I was the offender. So, and Krishna kept letting me do service during that time. So during those 10 years, I mean, I was still doing service and I was having spiritual realization having happiness in Christian consciousness. It's not that I wasn't making any progress at all. So obviously Krishna didn't accept my offense. He's like, that's all right. You pooped on me in the middle of the night, but you know, it's okay. I still love you. And, and that's what it is. Of course, if we go on offending devotees, especially once we understand, as soon as I understood that I had offended those devotees, I went, oops. I just did an Indra thinking I was the offended party when I was actually the offender. But if we do go on, I mean, what I've seen practically is if we go on offending, 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 and when people come up to us and say, <clears throat> excuse me, do you realize that you were, like, really offending the devotees here? No, there's hardly any devotees. Who's a devotee anyway? Or are you a devotee? No, I'm not a devotee. You know, if that sort of response, then eventually what Prabhupada says that he will do is that Krishna will put stumbling blocks in your path. The kind of things I've seen that will happen is like somebody will move very far away from the devotees, but they'll think it's a step up. Oh, we got a great place. It's wonderful. It's, you know, a six-hour drive from the devotees, and there's no other devotees there. Maybe we'll come for Janmashtami. But what a nice place. I've seen that happen so many times. That a person ends up in some situation where Krishna says, hey, you're going to offend the devotees. Why don't you be away from them? Just get as far away as possible. You know, so you'll be sure for Janmashtami. He puts stumbling blocks. Just like we would do, you know, if you have one kid that's hitting your other children over the head with their toys, you're going to take a time out. You're not offended by them. If one of your kids taking his, his fire trucks and hitting his brother over the head, you're not like you're offended with him. still your kid. You still love him. Go to your room. No more fire trucks for you. Can't play with him. You can't play nicely with your brother. And so it stopped. The kids' playtime is stopped. And if our offenses against devotees are bad enough, it's, it, Prabhupada is murdered. Our progress is just murdered. It's just like... So we could say, well, that's all right, Krishna still loves me, and he'll still reciprocate with me, and, but you know, he's going to put you in a timeout. 
stay there for a while. You know, frankly, it can be lifetimes. We can spend lifetimes where our progress is very, very, very minimal. We're not really allowed, like here's talking about the spiritual world. The spiritual world's full of devotees. If we can't relate with a few devotees here, how are we going to relate with billions of devotees? You know, it just, it's not going to work. The spiritual world is the spiritual world because people there are not offensive. But still Krishna is very kind. And we should remember that also and we should be kind. We may not, we should not personally associate with people who are offenders. But we should feel kindness and compassion for them. Otherwise, we don't want to offend the offenders. You understand? You don't want to offend the offenders of the offenders of the offenders. It becomes the same thing. Oh, that person's so offensive. Well, but maybe they're still a devotee too. In, in fact, Krishna warns in 9.30 in the Bhagavad Gita, that even those who are great offenders, if they're still my devotees, they're still to be considered saintly. So we should be careful. I mean, if someone's committing some terrible, violent criminal activity, let them go to jail and don't let them come to the temple or whatever. But we have an attitude of kindness. If they're still chanting Hare Krishna and they're trying to do some service. I had a, a real challenge some years ago. When, when, uh, when I first started teaching Gurukul, I, I taught the preschool before that. When I first started teaching Gurukul, my first students were all, uh, I had just girls that first year, and they were all like about 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And each of them had been through a crisis. One of them, her mother had died when she was two, and she had been sent to an ashram school where she had been physically and emotionally abused. She hardly, at age 11, she could hardly read. And there was another girl whose uh, mother had died, just died of cancer. She'd never known her father. And her stepfather was not treating her nicely. The extent of that I didn't know until recently, but it was pretty bad. And then there was another girl whose uh, father had sexually molested her and was in prison. And her mother had just recently remarried and immediately gotten pregnant like two weeks after the marriage, and it was a very difficult pregnancy, and the mother was on bed rest. So a mother was on bed rest, stepfather had never had any children, and all of a sudden he had this young girl just starting puberty who had been, I don't know. So this, oh, and then I had another girl whose father had become a Radhakund Babaji, and her stepfather had started a restaurant where he sold fish, and her mother had had an affair with a sannyasi guru, and so they had, yes, so these were my first students. This was my, my initiation into academic teaching. Anyway, so uh, some years ago, I was in Vrindavan, and I met the man who was the father of the sexually molested girl. He was, he was the one who had uh, sexually molested my student, and he had recently gotten out of jail, and he was again trying to take up his Krishna consciousness. So I met him in Vrindavan. And he, he approached me and he introduced himself and told me who he was. And I must admit that I had very uh, mixed feelings. I didn't really know. I mean, here I had been trying to take care of this girl uh, 
right after she, her father had been put in jail and, and her mother had been married and, and all the trauma that, that she was going through. And so I had dealt a lot with this, this young woman's pain and I didn't really know how to deal with this, with this man. So I, I, I frankly didn't say much. I, I just listened. And I, I really, really tried as much as I could in my heart to be compassionate to him. It was, it was not easy. I mean, he's probably talked to me for about two hours. In that time, maybe I said five minutes worth of stuff. But it gave me a different perspective. I thought, here's somebody who, although he's caused a, a tremendous, horrible offense to a, a devotee and his daughter and another living entity, he's still a person too. It wasn't that he wasn't a person. And it wasn't that he didn't have any love for Krishna Prabhupada. It was, it was a very interesting experience. So, uh, you know, there's also this side of things that even if a person is a murderer or a rapist or whatever, they're still a living entity. And there's still somebody that Krishna loves. And, and how to deal with them in that way. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be punished. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be separated from other people and so forth. But not with enmity, and not with envy, and not with cruelty. Because Krishna is very kind also to the offenders. And we might think that, well, you know, I've never done anything like that. I've never in my life done any criminal activity. I mean, I did steal some candy from a shop when I was a teenager. But, you know, and I have gone too fast on the roads. But if I look at my life and I say, well, okay, I've never done anything criminal. You know, I'm, I have so much moral superiority to the offenders, to the gross criminal offenders. But it's not really like that. Therefore, the Acharyas will say, I'm the most sinful of all sinners. And you think, well, they haven't done anything wrong. Why are they saying this? Because whenever we rebel against Krishna, whether our rebellion against Krishna manifest as simply in our attitude or whether it manifests as being a, a rapist and a murderer and an arsonist and so forth. It's essentially the same thing. Evil is essentially evil. Like Prabhupada says, well, you, whether you're stealing a cucumber or you're stealing a diamond, you're still a thief. And if you say, well, I've only stolen cucumbers. This guy stole diamonds. Uh, no. Anyone who's in this world as a conditioned soul is more or less an offender. So although there's practical considerations as far as keeping people safe and practical considerations in terms of justice and so forth, uh, we should not hate anyone. We should be like the Lord and not hate anyone. Now we shouldn't take advantage of the Lord's kindness towards offenders and think, well therefore I can commit offenses. Because everything will stop and we will be dealt with in terms of justice and, and our devotional service will be trampled. So Krishna also has kindness to the offended. And this is another great source of solace for us. Because I think although all conditioned souls are offenders, we have also all been offended, yes? Have we all been offended? Yes? And sometimes when we've been offended, there has not been justice. This girl's father was caught, he was put in jail. But many of the people who've offended us 
have never been caught and never been punished, isn't it? In fact, sometimes the people who offended us continue to have some high position and act with impunity. Correct? Sometimes no one even believes us. This person has really insulted me, really offended me, this person has stolen from me, whatever, and we're not even believed. Sometimes we're even blamed when we're the offended part, isn't it? We're the, we're the victim and we get blamed. But we should know Krishna is very kind to the offended. That ultimately there is justice. Ultimately Krishna does protect us. Just like he protected Draupadi, protected Kunti and the Pandavas. That Krishna is taking care of us. Krishna does know everything that happened. And he will rectify everything in time. That's like Krishna took strong action here. The doorkeepers were banished, even though they were his devotees. He said, no, you guys go to the material world. And the Kumaras became, they went from impersonless Brahma bodies to pure devotees of the Lord. Then, of course, Prabhupada says here that the Lord is very kind to his pure devotees. So although the Lord is equal to everyone, those who are not impersonalists, those who are not offenders, and those who never feel offended, like Haridas Thakur, like Prahlad Maharaj, that even though they were offended, they never felt that they were offended. They never emotionally felt offended. They knew they were offended. Prahlad says, my father has committed grievous offenses against me. But Prahlad didn't feel offended. So to those people, the Lord's kindness is so sweet and so unlimited. Such people are invited to live with him in his abode forever. He shares all of his opulences with them. He shares all of his happiness with them. Everything is given to such people because they give everything to him. So yes, the Lord is kind to us if we're impersonalists. The Lord is kind to us if we're offenders. The Lord is kind to us if we feel offended and self-righteous. Morally superior. But we'll best be able to take advantage of the Lord's kindness and to appreciate the Lord's kindness if we ourselves imbibe the same mood as Him. If we give up the false ego if we're, if we're really in a platform of selfless loving service. So that's what we should aspire to. And then we'll experience the Lord's kindness as, as just simply pure love. We won't have any confusion about how he's dealing with us and maybe sometimes think that he's dealing with us in a way that's not so pleasant. And I think we've all experienced, at least sometimes, that when we do serve the Lord without motivation, and we do serve the Lord just with love, that we have this amazing appreciation and gratitude for His love for us, isn't it? Even if it's just, you know, a minute here and there. And this is what we see in other people also. Sometimes we see devotees, they have all kinds of situations in their lives. 
But they just keep surrendering in love and they keep giving themselves in love. And we see that these people experience the Lord's grace. One of my very good friends recently went through a very difficult situation and said to me, I decided I was going to choose love and surrender and forgiveness instead of anger and bitterness. And I thought I would get peace, but I got beyond that. I got such expansive joy and such gratitude for the presence of the Lord and how He, how he reciprocates with me. So if we're intelligent, we should say that if the Lord is kind to everyone and pleased with everyone and benedicts everyone, why don't I act in the best way to deal with that pleasure and kindness? So thank you very much. If anyone has questions or comments, we just have a few minutes. And if anybody wants a book, you can get a book with request. Yes. How do we overcome the not feeling offended? I actually have um, an entry on my blog on this topic. And there's a... What I found very helpful was a chapter written by St. Teresa of Avila, who lived about 500 years ago in Spain. She was the head of a convent, and she wrote instructions to the nuns in her convent. And she wrote that whenever you're criticized or blamed for something, especially unjustly, that you should not defend yourself at all. Just get, make, get in a habit of not defending yourself, especially when you feel unjustly put upon. And she was saying how that if you practice this habit, eventually you simply will not feel offended by anyone. She said eventually when other people offend you, you'll feel that they're dealing with someone else rather than with you. It just has nothing to do with you. It was very interesting in that chapter. She writes, she, she writes, I only like to give advice to the nuns that I'm following myself. She said, but I've had a very hard time following this because I've had a hard time finding any time when somebody accused me or insulted me unjustly. She said, even if sometimes it might have been like that, Immediately I thought about all the times I've done something wrong that nobody knew about. So it's, it's very interesting. And it's, frankly, it's not a difficult thing to do. I, I li- liked your advice because I found it very practical. And, and very down to earth. You know, sometimes you read about Prahlad and, and Haridas and you just think, well, what do they have to do with me? You know, that's something for the people up there. I'll do that someday. But she was writing to, you know, Christian nuns. I mean, I don't... They were sadikas and Roman Catholic sadikas. And I think it's something that we can practice. Just, I will not defend myself. I mean, obviously, we have some business to defend if somebody's trying to kill us or rape us. Not defend our ego, basically. Try it for a few days and say, you know, okay, Krishna, for the next three days, I'm not going to defend my ego. 
I'm not going to try to prove to anybody that I'm right or that I'm blameless or that they're wrong. And see how you feel. And if you like it, then try it for a week. And see how you feel. And if you like it, you can try it for two weeks. It's good to do this in increments, that way the mind doesn't rebel. If you say to your mind, I'm, I'm never going to defend my ego for the rest of my life. It's just like Alcoholics Anonymous. They each vow to be sober for that day, I think. I think they do it a day at a time. And Bhakti Vinod talks about this. He talks about taking vows for like three days and then two weeks and a month. And see how you like it. And see how things go. What she also writes in that chapter, she said, perhaps one of the biggest benefits is the astonishment of other people that you're not defending yourself. And she was saying that astonishment is a very powerful preaching. What I also found helpful was uh, a book I read on the psychology of rage and that our anger at being insulted or being offended in some way is actually biological. You know, we all have to eat, and we have to sleep, and we have to have shelter. And if, the, if we're not able to get those things, we'll tend to fight. Because we need those things for our survival. So we have a tendency, a biological tendency, to fight for our survival. Which is necessary, biologically speaking. Now part of the way that we get resources is due to our status which is true also in the animal kingdom. The higher status animals in a social group get more access to resources, yes? Which is also true among human beings. The higher status human beings have more access to resources. Most of the time we feel offended is because our status is being threatened in some way. Someone's being disrespectful to us. And on a kind of primal biological level, there's some fear that if my status is being threatened, I may lose access to resources and I may not be able to live. And so we have this biological reaction in our body that there's a threat, just like we would have, you know, some dog came and growled at us. So, if, you know, if some dog is growling or a pack of dogs growling at us, so what our body does is say, danger, danger, danger and it pulls the blood and the nutrients into our arms and legs, away from our digestion, away from our prefrontal cortex. Our everything, everything is put into the animal parts of our brain, our reptilian brain, as they say. Why? Because we, we, we don't want the capacity to think deeply and philosophically and introspectively. We want the capacity to fight with the dogs, or, or freeze, or run away. That's what we want. And we get that reaction also when we're insulted or offended because that feels to us biologically like an attack. Which means we basically have no intelligence. Literally, it, it actually, the, the biochemical process is our intelligence goes away. We become like an animal. So once you understand that, you're like, oh, that's what's going on. And I, I don't have to be controlled like I'm a, you know, like I'm a dog. I don't have to act like an animal. I'm not required to. I'm, I'm a human being. 
Krishna's arranged that system in the body for my protection, and I'm grateful for it, and I'm, I'm appreciative. But I, I can step back. I can physically shut down that reaction by doing some, some deep breathing. Deep breathing tells your body you're not in danger. When we're in danger, our breathing and heartbeat get really fast. Move back from the situation. Breathe deeply. Slow down. Get the nutrients going to your prefrontal cortex again. Seriously, I mean literally. Change the dials on the body. It's like if your smoke alarm goes off because you're making japatis. Yeah, does that happen anymore? You don't call the, the fire department. Ah, uh, smoke alarm goes off when I make japatis. So move back. Am I really being threatened? And even if I am really being threatened, Mari Krishna Rake K, Rake Krishna Mari K. Do I need to respond to, to defend myself or to attack the other party? Do I actually need to do that? Can I just let Krishna take care of me? St. Teresa also writes, she said, don't worry, if you need to be defended, God will arrange for someone else to defend you. You don't need to do it yourself. If he actually thinks it's necessary, he'll take care of it. So practice it. As a practice. The Trinadapi Sunicena verse is, is, is in the realm, according to Bhattarahasya Bhakti Vyotakur, it's in the realm of sadhana. That, that's not a verse speaking about the, the satya, the pure devotees, it's a, it's a verse talking about the sadhakas. It's something we're supposed to practice. It's not just something that falls on us one day because we're chanting. And imagine a society where everybody practiced that. Suppose that, you know, 99.9% of the devotees in our Krishna consciousness movement practice this. That'd be a nicer movement, I think, yeah. Okay, I think I should end there. Thank you very much.